not everybody who takes training is starting at the same starting line. And a lot of people are weighed down by past bags when they're running that race. So we need to understand that not everybody's coming in in a healthy mindset. The freeze model I gave you was a healthy mindset, short, medium, long. If you're trained, we'll reduce that, the depth and the duration, right? If trauma is there, sometimes, usually, it increases depth and duration. So when we're training with civilians especially, we need to understand they're not there to become ultra badass. They're not there to, right? They're there to take this course to feel a little bit safer when they're walking around. So we have to be aware of their triggers and traumas to get them to a level of even getting that normal space in the model. Welcome to the Close Quarter Dad podcast. Discussions about raising your kids with confidence, safety, and resilience. I'm your host, Adam Mitchell, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We are honored to be with Mr. Randy King from 8020 Conflict Management Strategies, which is a uh, uh, is a self-defense and personal protection program. And uh, Randy is an education-based self-defense coach uh, working strictly in the civilian role uh, as an instructor. And um, Randy, I'd like to kind of get started with, um, and, and then I really kind of want to just go right straight into civilian-based self-defense because this is fascinating. And I know um, I I know we only have a short time together, but I want to get as much out of you as I can selfishly. Uh, um, but t talk to us a little bit about um, your history and what got you to developing 80-20 uh, conflict management strategies. A little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I like to start off this like elevator speech or whatever bio pitch with, this is the only career I know of that you can make all of the mistakes and then still be successful. So a lot of my career was based off of just uh, failure and analysis of my own personal journey. So I was a very overweight child, so I was bullied. Saw the Power Rangers, decided, hey, Power Rangers don't get bullied. I want to do martial arts. Did martial arts since I was 10. I've been doing it continually up till now. Um, got a black belt in Taekwondo because I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We have more Taekwondo schools per capita than anywhere, in, almost anywhere in North America. So uh, that was the most accessible art to me at the time. Didn't know anything else. Was no internet to research. And then got a black belt, did a bunch of stuff, uh, fell for the myth of the Invincible Warrior because I was winning a bunch of sport-based tournaments Decided I could turn that into a bouncing career because I've never been very school-y, even though I love to research, I have to research my own stuff. Uh, and then from there, reality punched me in the face. So I like to say that the wave of my ego crashed on the cliff of reality and broke apart because I had been told and taught and uh, all of my training was about me being this invincible Batman-like character, which is what you need if you're a competitive fighter. I did full contact fighting and that kind of stuff. There's no room for fear in there, right? Because you're trying to dominate and win. That changed dramatically when I started trying to use those skills in real life. So the first like aha moment for me was how ineffective my Taekwondo at the time was against a older, slower, opponents who tuned me up real quick as I was a bouncer. So I bounced for 11 years full-time in some of the roughest clubs in Oil Town, Edmonton. And that was where a lot of my first lessons came from. 
on the differences between social and asocial violence, uh, de-escalation, that kind of stuff. Uh, I have a program called Smiling Security, right? Nobody punches a smiling doorman is my rule. So when, when we're looking at that, that was my first like, aha, oh, maybe what people are selling isn't what we actually need. And then I opened up my own gym, KPC Self-Defense, which doesn't exist anymore here in Edmonton. And I decided to start teaching people that. Like, look, here's my failures. Here's what messed up. And then because I've always been a reflective type instructor, right? It's, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching with you, not at you. So we started getting more and more women coming into the gym. And the problems they were facing were much different than the problems I was facing. So I thought I was like, aha, I got, I understand violence. And then women came into the room. I'm like, oh. I don't get any of this. So I went into a deep research hole um, during a depression I had after I was stabbed at the front door. I've been stabbed a couple of times. Uh, and that kind of brought me to the beginning of the path that I walk now, which is looking at violence holistically, like all aspects of it, and having an integrated self-defense strategy, which to me, from what I've seen, is way more about education, boundaries, social circles, than it is about kick punching and choking. And so that's where we're at now. So 80-20 is my, my, my gift, I guess, my product to the world where uh, I take violence and we look at it in a really realistic way. We get rid of the bravado. We get rid of the warrior mentality, the lions and the bear logos, and even though we have a wolf on our logo. Uh, but we go through all of the, all the things and I found with the groups of people that I work with, so I work with a lot of youth at risk, First Nations, uh, Métis here in Alberta and all over the world, I've taught in like 10 countries. When we're doing this approach, it's it's way more accessible because the current market for self-defense is people look like me who want to be tough guys until they're dead. And just if you look at the numbers and the data and if you really like study this animal that is violence, most of the problems that I'm going to run into, I'm probably going to create myself, right? When we look at children or uh, smaller humans or socioeconomic differences, this is where the real truth and violence lies. And that's where most instructors don't talk about. They're, they're teaching you how to like stop a bar fight or, you know, like stop this stranger danger, which is such a small percentage of the actual volume of violence. So that's where we're at today is I'm trying to show people that, Self-defense is way closer to safety training than it is to martial arts. Absolutely. Because the goal of self-defense is no incident happens, not waiting to use my cool techniques on somebody if something happens. I love it. Randy, you and I have uh, some pretty strong alignment early in, uh, you know, I started martial arts too when I was a, a young kid. Uh, I was a bouncer, I worked the door at a seedy kind of punk club in uh, northeast of the states and i got knifed up one night too there so i uh, took nine i got, oh, I got stabbed nine times so um it's interesting uh to have you know you know oftentimes you bump into someone and you could be like hey man we uh you know we're shoulder to shoulder with some stories here so it's good to have you um i you know you talk about uh the civilian based model of training which is oftentimes refreshing to hear because we have, you know, self-defense classes either become these, uh, you, you, a lot of instructors, as you know, will pull techniques from their martial arts curriculum and say, maybe this works for a women's group, or maybe this works for a kid's group, or maybe we'll do hands up stranger danger. Um, but 
it sounds to me that the model that you're presenting to your clients and your students is something that's completely different. And as you said, it's centered around safety. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the most, uh, like principle wise, when we, st- before we kind of step into your sort of like the, the whole circle training, or when, when we step into more of like taking that 800 foot view back and looking at the the canvas of what we want to create, because ultimately my goal in this conversation with you is to inspire dads to create their training model and maybe getting some inspiration from someone of your caliber uh, is what they need. And that's what I want to be able to provide for them in this conversation. But let's take a real big 800 foot uh, step back and look at like what civilian based training is not a martial art thing. And I know you kind of touched on it a little bit when you're talking about like, you know, your, your history here, but let's really sort of deconstruct this and explain that, you know, safety training and civilian based self-defense, civilian based personal protection is not, not martial arts. So what, let's, uh, let's, how, how do you speak to that? Sure. So I think this is one of the biggest issues in the industry currently, according to me in my opinion, is that all, almost every single person who's wrote a book or who has uh, created a course or who has done something, they have a very high level of training which gives them the authority to be in the self-defense space, if that makes sense. And the issue is that a lot of the, the, a lot of the things that civilians are going to face with no training the people who have trained their whole lives are not going to uh, understand or be able to address because they didn't experience those things. So let me give you an example. I'm sure you've heard the term freeze, flight, fight, other Fs on top of that, right? One of the biggest areas I study is the freeze because when I was stabbed the big time, the one, the story that I tell all the time, the story that's like the first chapter in my book that I'm writing is... Uh, That freeze messed me up because nobody talked about freezing. Nobody did any of that stuff. Now, as I started researching, people were talking about freezes and they had like two levels of freeze. They had like a short freeze and a medium freeze. And if you've trained very well, so let's say you're an ex-SWAT officer, army ranger or whatever, your training is going to be so good that you're not going to reach what we call the third or the deepest freeze, which is an overwhelmed freeze because training takes care of that type of freeze. So that's one of the areas where people get confused, right? So when I start, when I do my freeze presentation, we have three levels of freeze. We have detection, which is like, I go boo, and you go, right? Then you laugh, that's a detection freeze. Then we go into what we call a shocked freeze. A shocked freeze is something happens in a way you didn't think it could happen, which takes your brain a little bit of time. That's your medium freeze. And that's where most people stop. When we look at civilians with no training, There's another level of freeze, which we call the overwhelm freeze. And that's where something happens so outside of your scope that your brain can't handle it. Or you end up with no good options and your brain decides that freezing is the best option. So when, especially when I present this at seminars, uh, every single time I talk about this this third level of freeze, I get at least six people from pretty much every group saying, oh my God, that happened to me. Nobody's ever talked about that, right? And... The interesting thing about uh, recovery, so people want to be special, except when it comes to recovery. They want to be like, they want the experience they had to be like everybody else's experiences, right? They don't want to be the one person that, 
oh, if anybody else in that situation, they would have done better than me. So just sharing stuff like that alone opens the doors. When you're looking, when you're talking to civilians, it's always about the client. It's never about the coach. Like, so it's my job to show you the, the mile markers on the path, but I'm just pointing with civilian self-defense. It's their job to walk up there because everybody's path is going to be different. And this is where the older style of instructors, in my opinion, uh, fall apart because they're just, they're telling war stories and they're showing how heroic they are as opposed to concentrating on the civilian. So I think the biggest difference between my type of training and the type of training, um, when it comes to like the older style is the older style, your result expectation is heroics with my style of training. The result expectation is nothing bad happens and you continue on with your life. It is very hard to sell somebody a solution of nothing happens because you can't quantify it like a martial art, right? Where I've been in X amount of fights. I've won this many. When I'm like, oh, the goal is nothing. They're like, why are we paying you for nothing? That's right. Right? So it's, I saw this a lot in security. We used to uh, open up bars when they were being opened and we'd have a good amount of security people. Then there'd be no fights. So then the the bar was like, let's increase profit. We'll reduce security. And I'm like, well, reducing security is, is dumb because like, that's the reason there's no fight. Like, well, there's no fights. Why would we need so much security? And it's like a chicken in the egg, right? Well, you don't need, you don't, you have no fights because there's so much security, right? So it's very hard for us to understand that nothing is the option or is the goal of this, but that's where, that's the difference, right? Like if you're coming to train with me, we're not telling hero stories. We're not... We're not raw, wrong you up. We're saying this is how violence happens. Here are the ways to exit out of it. Sometimes you can't, you can make no mistakes and still lose, right? You can still, you can do everything correctly and still get overwhelmed. That happens. And if that does happen, here's the things you need to do to get back to that. Because my definition of self-defense is getting back to your life as frictionlessly as possible after the event. So frictionlessly means no lawsuit, no injury, no people don't retaliate, right? Like there's so much stuff. You don't need to go to counseling after. There's so much stuff in the aftermath of violence that nobody talks about. The sexy part of violence is that couple of minutes of engagement, yeah. right? 30, 40, 50 seconds, whatever, two minutes. But the reality is up to that point and after that point are far more important than the scuffle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd like to... Uh take a step back and deconstruct something that you spoke about. And those are those three phases of the freeze. Um, and I'd like to mm -hmm. hear your opinion on when we uh, teach this to a child, let's say it's like a five or six year old child, or we teach this to a teenager. We explain them what the ph physiological outcomes of uh, you know, this type of threat, whether it just be like you said, someone going boo and you're like, Whoa, Whoa. Uh, or actually stepping into uh, a situation where your 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 arms and legs go numb, you begin to get you know uh, tunnel vision, your body starts to go through those changes. You just kind of lock up, and your your um, your judgment is skewed. Your response mechanism shuts down, and you don't know whether to move left, move right, lift your arm. You just you you lock. I'm curious to hear if. From, from your experience in working with uh, people, if explaining this to them 
and then taking them through some scenarios is enough to allow them to have agency over that in those moments to where they can say to themselves, okay, this is what's happening in my body right now. Take a couple breaths or whatever the, whatever the, you know, whatever the exercise is that you teach in your model. But is that enough for them to have agency in those moments to identify that this is what the process is physiologically, and then they can get out of it quicker, or we can, we can, shorten the judgment gap so that they can make faster they can make they can make clear judgments in shorter periods of time uh, what do you say about that I say I hope that is true because that is the hypothesis I'm working off yeah. right so humans do poorly with no plan simple as that there's just humans need to know what's going on in order to perform properly right because you have three options when you are in a situation. You can underperform, you can do the proper response, or you can overperform. Overperforming is just as bad as underperforming when it comes to legal issues, etc. Yeah, that's a great. Point. So being too amped up is bad. Being too uh, too passive is maybe bad as well, depending on each scenario because self defense is so contextually based. But w- people like to make martial arts special. It's not special. It's like any other sport endeavor. It's like any other patterning endeavor. It's like any other uh, conditioning endeavor, right? It's not It's not special and magic, and it's just not. But people like to make it sound like it is. So I do believe that with training, you can reduce the depth and duration of your freeze. So like I mentioned earlier, th- High-level people have never experienced an overwhelmed freeze because their training already took care of the unknowns. Mm. They're not going to run that situation. So they only have the two, the shocked and the detection, the medium and the short, right? I've worked with people all around the world. I've worked with police and all, every, you know, like every instructor. And I was talking with a former Army Ranger, and he was talking about the freeze because this was a big fascination for me for a very long time. And he said that he does freeze, but his freeze is like two seconds. Like with tachyphagia, time dilation, maybe we don't know. But he says like if his gun jams, there's still a freeze. But if your brain has a touch point on what to do next, you will cycle through that freeze faster. There is a misnomer in the industry that you can break a freeze. You cannot break a freeze. If you're frozen, you cannot do anything. So you cannot break something when you cannot act. If you come out of the freeze, the freeze is ended. It's not broken. So what we do is we take care of that at the beginning. So... I do believe the more scenarios you put them in that are realistic to the environment they're going to go through because everybody's reality is different, right? Not so much like, you know, like facts aren't true, but I mean like what I'm going to face, what criminals are going to select me is much different than who are going to select my daughter, who are more different than going to select my wife, right? Like there's, we have to understand that not all of us are equally being selected for crime. So as we're doing that, the level of training if it is accurate and done well scenario training if done well is one good way to work through it it should reduce that that uh that freeze loop it should reduce it to you're still going to freeze it's the first thing that happens so a lot of people say it's fight it's freeze flight or fight it's not it's freeze and then fight flight blah 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 it just depends how long that freeze is going to be because that's your brain changing gears from you know, work mode drinks with friend to creepy guys hitting on you. It takes your brain a second to get into that new space, right? It's a gear shift. We can train to make it smaller. But on the other side of this, which is very important, is trauma 
can increase the depth and duration of the freeze. So for example, I just came back from a seminar and I was working with a lady who experienced very strong trauma. Um, the big comment we got was the way that we presented the material. I keep saying we like there's a mouse in my pocket. It was just me. But <laughs> I, the way I presented, the way I presented the material is um, she said this was the first time she had ever been able to access her fighting skills in a, in a training scenario. And she's done them multiple times. Her husband's a Muay Thai coach. Couldn't get her there, but the way we presented it. So trauma will increase that. So I don't know if you've seen it, but there's some people that have gone through so many terrible experiences that it, if you go boo, they'll go into a ball and they'll be shut down for three, four minutes. So they're short, medium, and long. They might just instantly go to the long freeze mm. because of the trauma that they've experienced. So this is one of the things that needs to be brought up and one of the things I'm bringing up in the book that I keep mentioning is uh, not everybody who takes training is starting at the same starting line. And a lot of people are weighed down by past bags when they're running that race. So we need to understand that not everybody's coming in in a healthy mindset. The freeze model I gave you was a healthy mindset, short, medium, long. If you're trained, we'll reduce that, the depth and the duration, right? If trauma is there, sometimes, usually, it increases depth and duration. So when we're training with civilians especially, we need to understand they're not there to become ultra badass they're not there to right they're there to take this course to feel a little bit safer when they're walking around so we have to be aware of their triggers and traumas to get them to a level of even getting that normal space in the model uh, that's great i really want to step into um looping and post-conflict and that type of and can that kind of post-conflict freeze the freezes that occur after you know in whether it's de-escalation or you know you're freezing in self-triage or you're freezing in like everything that happens after based on the trauma point of no return this is like this is the stuff i just love talking about but i don't want to veer too i want to be yeah, sensitive yeah. of your time and uh I, i'd sure. like to um but maybe on another conversation maybe i can have you on the podcast or you know we can continue this conversation elsewhere because you know, you know, hearing stuff like this from people with your type of experience is just not only valuable, uh, but I find it fascinating. Um, let's take a couple steps back. And I, in your system, you have a thing, uh, a model that you call whole circle training. Um, I'm, can you talk a little bit about that uh, and explain it? And then let's maybe pivot into, is that the, a reasonable model? Or what do you know? What, what, what do you recommend as a reason? realistic place to begin when working with our children on this topic right well i think it's a reasonable model because i use it okay. so maybe you can tell me it's reasonable right on uh the so we use a training stack like almost everybody does and uh, the base is obviously more important and if you can't if you don't have a strong base you can't build foundation on top of it so again a lot of instructors like to pat themselves on the back for how well they do with students but a lot of the students self-select the journey they're taking. So sure, you might have like got them through some like hard moments, but a lot of us don't realize that maybe they almost emailed you 18 times and they deleted it and they were too scared, right? I have a story of a Good gentleman point. who he he's now like Captain CrossFit, super like we all go to workout advice. But when he first joined my gym, when I had the gym, the full-time gym, he was scared of every class. He told me he had to walk around with his hands on his head. He was panicking because 
he just didn't think he could keep up with the class. At, at that time, my training was very like raw, raw skull on shirt, right? Like, oh, we're men. And uh, it's, uh, which has evolved, thankfully. But but he he was scared. And like, we forget that. We forget that people, they haven't even allowed themselves to think about hurting somebody else, right? Especially if they're really deep in a bad cycle. Uh, I work with a woman who, we had a deep talk. We're up way north. Like I could see Santa's house. We were in Gamity Northwest Territories. And we were teaching one of the, the tribes up there. And uh, it was, I think it was a band. One of the bands up there. And we had this like night of like whiskey in the woods and whatever, chatting and chilling. And she had been raped multiple times. And, you know, we got to a point in our relationship where I was like, can I ask you a question? Like, like and obviously, like you can't survive wrong. So if you survive the encounter, I'm not here to armchair quarterback that. There's no way. If you're telling me the story, you did it. You can't survive incorrectly. But why didn't you fight back any of these times? And she straight up told me, she goes, oh, I didn't think I was worth defending, right? Like, I don't, why would I, who cares about me, right? And, see, and this, is, this is the thing, Adam. This is what people forget is it's not, the people that have the money and the will to do training aren't necessarily the people that need it the most, yeah. right? This woman needed it. So we had this conversation. She helped me build the stack, right? So number one in my stack, we call permission. You have to give yourself permission to do something. I could teach you all of the best martial arts moves on the planet. I could make you, maybe I, maybe I can't, let's, let's not ingrate too big, but let's say I could make you the best fighter on the planet. If you don't think you're worth defending, all of this is pointless. Right? So, number one, permission. Incredibly you to, powerful. You have to pump your tires. Pardon I me? I said incredibly powerful. Incredibly, yeah. That's Yes. It's so important. Yeah. So, as you can tell, I'm not an unconfident person. Uh, she had this lack of confidence I didn't have. And it didn't even register to me that somebody would have such a low level of self-worth. So, that was a big aha pivot moment for me. So like I said, the bottom of the pyramid, permission. You need permission. Without that, nothing is there. You need, you need to demand better of yourself, your training. You need to find a way to protect yourself. If it's outsourcing that to if they touch my kids, I'll go crazy or whatever you need to do. You need to know that you are worth defending and nobody's allowed to mess with you. It doesn't matter what you've been through. You can still, you are still worth something. So once we've jumped that hurdle, Right. And a lot of people do jump that hurdle quickly because they've signed up for the class. But a lot of the times I go to places, I'm working with people who didn't sign up for a class. I'm part of something they have to do to get a certification. Right. So I'm not getting like, oh, I read Randy's this and I do his podcast. And, you know, I love that guy. Those are the best. Those are easy seminars. I love the ones where I'm famous and everybody's like, oh, Randy's here. Those are easy sales. The ones where people have experienced real violence. Right, And you talked about being stabbed, I did too. When I talk to boardrooms, me being stabbed is like this amazing, <gasps> what happened? When I'm teaching on the reserves, when I say I got stabbed, it's now an exchange of stabbing stories. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, me too. <laughs> so the, the demographics <laughs> I work with are so diverse. That's why I call this holistic or whole circle training uh, yeah. is because we need to talk to everybody about this. So number one is demand. Uh, sorry, permissions, demand better. Next is strategy. You need to figure out what your strategy is, not your techniques, not your system, what's your strategy. 
Keep my kids safe. Protect my property. Don't get assaulted. Get the class safely. What is the whole purpose of why I'm doing this? If you don't have a strategy, again, the best arm bar in the world isn't going to work. You can jump this to MMA. MMA fighters don't go in there and go, oh, I want to win. They go, I'm going to win by putting them on the ground. Then whatever technique pops up, pops up. So permission, strategy. Next is resilience. If you don't have the ability to enforce your boundaries, whether physical, emotional, intellectual, or whatever, repeatedly, then your strategy is going to fall apart. And then on the top of my pyramid, I put skill. That's the actual physical martial arts training. Because again, the most skilled person who can't do two flights of stairs or who doesn't have the will to stop somebody with no resilience isn't going to do anything. If they don't have an overarching goal or strategy, the techniques become pointless because you're just trying stuff out. And if you don't believe you're worth defending, none of the rest of this matters. So that's kind of my teaching stack. Hmm. I like this. So permission, strategy, resilience, and skill. And yes. what I'm hearing, Randy, is the most important thing, which aligns with the classic survival continuum, which is the first thing before anything, before shelter, warmth, whatever, you have to have the will to survive, right? You have to have the will to right. survive. So what I'm hearing is, is like that permission when in a situation where you there's imminent threat and you're, you're stepping into, you know, or someone has stepped into danger, you're, you're in a place where you have to survive, that you have to give yourself permission to do so. Uh, and I love that experience yeah. that you shared, oh, that unfortunate, uh, unfortunate experience with this woman. Um, and then the next is the strategy where, uh, you know, and it sounds to me like your model's kind of like you said, the tip of the pyramid. So kind of goes like this, where permission, you know, is it can, can reach to all areas of life. It's like, you know, you have to have that self-worth, yeah. that self-confidence and that self-awareness. Um, and then for, and then you can't have a strategy unless you have it. The strategy is built on top of that permission. Is that what I'm hearing? And, and That's exactly the way we built it. Yeah, yes. yeah. We've... We've seen the biggest result from that, right? When we walk in, because like, uh, I don't want to fill this all up with stories, but people mm -hmm. do learn best through stories. Absolutely. Uh, I had a student. I had a student. Because so this is what people need to understand is I, like a lot of people say like, oh, I've done this for 15 years, but they did it for 15 years, like twice a week at the local Y. This has been my full-time job for 15 years. All I do is teach and research and do this stuff. So we had a client in the gym and she was, by far one of our best students. She was beating the poop out of everybody. Everybody was getting beaten up. Um, and then she went out and she got horrifically sexually assaulted. Like, really, really bad. So she came back to class and we were talking to her when she was all healed up. And we were, of course, we had the relationship and I asked the question, right? Again, you can't survive incorrectly. I just want to know, like, what did they do that got you, number one student, into a bad situation? Because maybe there's a hole in our... Uh, syllabus maybe we should be teaching something else and she looked at me dead in the eyes and it broke my heart and she said oh i don't believe in any of this i just take this class because my dad wants me to take it and this keeps him off my back i don't think this actually works and that's when my uh, another aha uh, like if you don't believe you are worth defending you can be she was seriously she was wiping the floor with people but as soon as a real stress came, as soon as a real uh, situation came, like a really stressful one, um, 
she because she didn't believe what she was doing because she didn't get permission for herself to use it, she didn't use it. Wow. That kind of a side discussion here. Um, Randy, I'm curious. Back in the 90s, I used to work with uh, the Tom Pateri group and uh, Compliance Direction Takedown. And I, I don't know if you ever heard of them, but I used to, uh, we ran some women's programs. And I had, a, I had kind of a, a moment, I'm interested to hear your opinion here, where uh, the content that we were teaching was, was first of all, statistic-based. It was soft hand it was uh, exceptional content in my opinion still i, I feel it's ex it was exceptional I, I haven't taught it in years um <clears throat> this one woman started to cry and i'm sure you probably had experience similar to this but uh, when i pulled her aside i said you know i just wanted to kind of check in with you because you seem as though you there was a little bit of a trigger here and i just want to make sure you're okay and she said to me well i am okay but i just realized that's all i needed to do and I was like, oh, wow. Right. Yeah. And I found that there was a community of women, uh, and, you know, we all know the numbers, but there had been a community of women that didn't come uh, looking for uh, solutions. They came looking for answers to what had already happened. Right. Um, I'm curious to hear your um, experience and how you um, how you mitigate that and 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 what your experience has been on that. So the, the, I have a very big depth in this. In my, uh, I wrote a book on how to run a martial arts gym, a business book, a while ago. And the way I phrased it was there's, there's two types of clients that I ran into, right? Number one was preventative clients. They don't want something to happen mm -hmm. to them. The other side was curative clients. Something already did happen, and they don't want that thing to happen again. So this is where... I have a lot of strong opinions about this industry, and you probably knew that already when you brought me on. But uh, this is where I think instructors can really shit the bed in the, and I'm not saying you did, uh, but I'm saying there's some instructors like, oh, if you would have taken this class earlier, this wouldn't have happened to you. Yeah. Right? And it sometimes comes across that way. Obviously, if she had an emotional response, that is not the way you had presented it. But I've seen that happen where an instructor will be like, oh, yeah, well, if you would have done this or that, and they armchair quarterback this person's oh, global yeah. experience, and they add, like, jujitsu move or whatever their flavor is. Um, emotional responses are common. They are, especially when you're talking self-defense. Like, that's, I separate self-defense from other things. Like, self-defense is not combative. It's not sport training. It's not time capsule arts, I call traditional ones that are trying to maintain here, whatever God's system right? Self-defense is deeply personal and it's everybody's goals are going to be different and everybody's experiences are going to be different. So we, I front load people with the understanding that they might be triggered or yeah. discover a trigger they didn't know existed until they're in that. And then I have a protocol that we call you do you. So if you have an uh, emotional reaction or an energetic or a physical reaction, right? First thing we have to do is make sure you're physically okay because we've had a seminar where a guy went to the bathroom to have a heart attack privately. So number one, we need to make sure that you're physically safe. Then once that's done, we I say you do you, being you can go do what you need to do. If you want to grab somebody, take somebody with you. But the worst thing that can happen in this scenario is everybody in the room comes to talk to them. Right? Like, oh my God, are you okay? Are you okay? That, there's no benefit to that. With 
honestly, just by front loading those protocols, we've seen a reduction in the uh, extreme reactions as opposed to the, uh, we still have reactions and we have more, but they're not debilitating because they know like, oh, I might cry here, right? I might do this. The other thing that I think people don't know or it's implied is that eyes watering does not mean crying. Right. Right? So one of the, so we talk adrenaline stress response, uh, women and men have women and men in general, I don't want to get anybody yelled at for using the wrong language, but women and men in general, okay, in general, uh, they have different uptakes of adrenaline. It all comes down to serotonin and estrogen and blah, blah, blah. Long story short, men burn through adrenaline quicker than women do, and women don't feel the symptoms of adrenaline until later than men do. That's important. So, One of the symptoms of stress response slash adrenaline, because adrenaline isn't the only chemical. There's three chemicals. Adrenaline's like the one member of the boy band you know. There's like four other people singing, but everybody knows Nick. That's what adrenaline is, right? So the three chemicals hit your system, cortisol, norepinephrine, epinephrine, aka adrenaline. They give you all the things, the tunnel vision like we talked about earlier, right? Those are the symptoms you get. They'll get mitigated through training. But one symptom is eyes water. That happens. It's to keep fur out of your eyes or et cetera, et cetera. So men tend to adrenalize instantly so they don't remember their eyes watering. Women tend to adrenalize after the situation and so their eyes start to water, which they then tag as sad or weak because the only other time their eyes watered was when they were crying. Mm. So for us, we tell people this, like, listen, Everybody's eyes water when you're doing this, right? And we discovered this again. I make all the mistakes first and then we adjust. We, I got phone calls from a bunch of the women in our course and they were like, Randy had to pull the car over. I started shaking and my eyes started watering and I couldn't drive. Am I too weak for this class? I'm like, weak? Hell no, you're adrenalizing. You're Wonder Woman now. What are you talking about weak? Like this is, this is what's gonna happen. Your body's prepping for battle just a little bit later. So... When people are crying, we check. We're like, are you tearing or are you upset? And you, the, the freeze that happened was like, nobody's ever asked me that before. Nobody's ever asked me, am I just tearing or am I upset? And a lot of the times I get, I think I'm just tearing. I'm like, cool, do you want to continue? And yes. So we front load with that and we front load with the emergency response plan or whatever. And... That, in my experience, that has helped mitigate those kind of reactions. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's huge. I love how you preframe that. I love how you put it all together. Um, the reason I wanted to crack into this, Randy, is because I really would like, uh, you know, not just from me, but from other you know, professionals who this is their lane to understand that, <clears throat> especially with your teenage daughters, that when you're teaching these things, yeah. that you are going to see uh, responses that you don't expect. You're going to come to learn about experiences that your daughter has had in their life that you never knew about. Um, and there will be uh, emotional outpourings during and after uh, certain moments when you're working with your children. Um, but th- what that's going to do is it's going to really harden uh, the relationship between both of you. It's going to create a, a t- the type of bond that you have never experienced. But you need to recognize this and respond to that appropriately. And, and you just shared it perfectly. So that's extremely important and, and something that is just almost never even talked about. So I appreciate that. 
Yeah, it, it's it's so important, and the amount like the the amount of retention. So this is like Randy's brag moment. When I was running the gym and I was there full time, I wasn't traveling and being like Mr. Rockstar. Um, we had a 45% to 55% ratio, 45% women were training at our martial arts gym. That is unheard of in the industry. It's industry standards, like 10 to 15. We like tripled it because of understanding these things. Yeah. Wow. Um, talk, let's talk a little bit about, so we have permission and then we have, you know, building that strategy upon it. Um, yeah. Resilience. Resilience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've spoken to a, and I think I understand in, in what format you mean resilience. Um, through my conversations with a lot of people over the years, I've been fortunate enough to redefine my understanding of resilience over and over. Um, however, I think in, in one of the ways that I teach in my model, when we talk about building resilience for children, it's showing up uh, and allowing them to have over and over again, just gently uncomfortable uh, and gently fear-filled experiences uh, that you lead them through. That maybe in the beginning with the younger children, of course, you step over the stream first. You step on the slippery rocks to show them that it is possible. And then you invite them, giving them that permission, maybe maybe even building on your model here, like, okay, here's what you need to do now. You need to use the rocks and make sure your feet are this way. Um, and then what that's going to do is once they're able to cross that stream as this example, they're going to say, oh, this is easy. I can do it again and again and again and again, or maybe go across wider streams. And this is the formation of uh, resilience. Um, and when they're able to do that and they're more exposed to that in a younger age, one of the best ways I think of, of building resilience in young people is getting them outdoors. I don't think any of us is going to disagree on that. Oh, yeah getting them outdoors, getting them into where they have to become more and more aligned with nature, which is going to get them more and more aligned with their natural state, which means they're going to have better function and agency over themselves. Their senses are going to be more tuned in. They're going to be able to hear better, see better, which is going to ultimately help them in all areas of life, specifically here uh, in self-defense. Give me your definition though of resilience and help me expand it in my own, in my own mind. Sure. Resilience is the ability to deal with a difficult situation over and over again. So to me, resilience and repeatability kind of go hand in hand. Um, And so like the easiest way to talk about resiliency is through a physical model. But again, because we look at this big picture, uh, I have a boundary setting online course. I have a reality violence online course. I have a lot of crap out there. Uh, I guess crap is probably not a good way to promote it. But I have a lot of stuff out there. And... um, one of the things that people don't understand is, is resiliency in one area does not necessarily mean resilience in all areas. Right, and yeah. so we need to build <clears throat> resiliency in, in different areas, right? So I know a lot of very physically tough people that have zero emotional resiliency. They, they fall apart the second they're criticized or their view is looked at differently. So to me, resiliency is the ability to uh, recover. So it's, why do we fall down, Mr. Wayne, to get back up again, right? Like it's the ability to keep getting back up and to repeat the situation. Now, the really interesting with resiliency is the more resilience you get, the more resilient you get, the more repeatability you can get in something. So if we use physical um, resiliency as the benchmark for this, I always say there's like your top performance floor, right? Your ceiling rather. 
and then you have your floor of resiliency, right? So let's say I had two minutes and I have no resiliency in a physical place. I might, and we had a ball that would bounce between these, I might get one bounce out of the time because I have no floor of resiliency. But as I increase resiliency, the ball bounces more times because we're getting closer to the ceiling, which gives the ability to repeat that action more and more. So you'll hear a lot of instructors say things like, well, a street fight only lasts 30 seconds to a minute, so you don't need much more cardio or anaerobic capacity than that. If we look at the data, 40% of attacks have multiple people in it. 10% of the time, there's more of you than them. 30% of the time, there's more of them than you. Unless it's a burglary, then the odds are high there's more of them. You might need that 30 seconds four or five times, right? So the ability to take that take that loss and then come back is to me the essence of it. When we talk about emotional resiliency, right? It's the ability to, somebody can criticize you. It doesn't shut you down, right? Like there's a lot of, I don't know how much you are on social media, but I have a TikTok channel with my daughter called at the defense talks with Dad. So me and her do this like little chat or whatever. And we I love it. TikTok stuff. Yeah. Thanks. And it's super fun. And, uh, when like there's a, thing with the gen z kids i'm not picking on gen z kids but the gen z kids were like oh i've internalized that like you know you said it as a joke but i've internalized it that shows no emotional resiliency mm. right like you can't take it i got a ton of emotional resiliency because i was a fat kid so i've heard people make fun of me most of my life and you have to like learn how to deal with that right there's resiliency when it comes to like verbal boundaries right like some people are like i can't tell you the same thing three times all of this is important. But so me, to me, to answer your question, way less words. Resiliency is the ability to get back up after a difficult situation and, and repeatabilities connect to it to be able to do that again. Do you feel that there's a connection? And I'm sure we could, you know, we could probably find the connections inside the, the model here where strategy and permission kind of connect or, or, or kind of overlap and step into yeah. one another. I hear like um, resilience and skill as we move into skill, the tip of your pyramid here. Example, as mm -hmm. a Taekwondo student, or, uh, you know, I come from judo. The one of the most important things I found as an instructor and in working with Taekwondo students who may come to my school is that one, they work great in teams. I mean, Taekwondo students, when they cut, like, if I get a Taekwondo black belt, I know I'm getting someone who's going to listen to me and they're going to follow what I, what I tell them to yeah, do as an instructor. Sure. So their, their ability to work in teams is spot on. I know this comes down to the instructor, but my experience in my community is that there's been a couple of excellent instructors uh, in, that, in, in Taekwondo. The second is, and, and speaking more to my point here about resilience and skill and where, I'm, where I see that they may overlap, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it is impact sure. so your resiliency right. to be able to take a roundhouse kick over and over to your to your ribs to your stomach or to your arms on block or your legs can be continues mm -hmm. to be through exposure becomes better and better and uh and you know in judo you know hitting the ground and people will someone who's never been thrown or hit hit the ground in their life they're going to completely shut down if someone like a wrestler or a oh, judo yeah. guy throws you um, and if someone, you know, a Muay Thai or, a, you know, a top level, top of their game, Taekwondo player does a kick, you're, you're going to get stunned. And mm -hmm. I've, I'm curious to hear where resilience spills into skill or, or where skill you develop a certain degree of resilience where, 
and I think what I'm trying to do here, Randy, is as I'm hearing your model and, and its beauty, I'm trying to make sure that the listeners and viewers don't see these as separate layers, that they see them kind of like Legos, sort of, they merge into one another. So what, what say you? Adam, you nailed it. I literally say that what I teach is Lego blocks. If I'm teaching you dirty boxing, Arnie, self-defense, the, the, the soft skills, I call them proactive skills, the proactive skills, yeah. then yeah, they should all fit together. Uh, and I think this is a really interesting conversation because when a non-wrestler gets thrown to the ground, is it physical resiliency that doesn't let them get back up or is it mental resiliency that doesn't let them get back up, yeah. right? Because they were put in a situation they're foreign of, do they hit the ground and just freeze? I've never experienced this before. Am I in trouble? Am I broken? Because they haven't acclimated to that, right? So exactly what you're saying. The the pyramid are not separate things. They build onto each other. That's why I built them as a pyramid and not separate is if you don't have this one, this one doesn't work. It falls apart. You need a strong base to make that happen. And there's a line that goes through all of them. So yeah, so the reason why resiliency is before skill is because again, you can be the most skilled air puncher on the planet, but if you've never taken a punch or you've never been thrown to the ground, that you're not going to have either the mental, emotional, physical resiliency to be able to continue pressing forward. So yeah, that that's where it bleeds over. And that's always my conversation. Like you see it with kids, right? A kid goes running, they trip and they fall. And you're like, nobody say anything. And if nobody reacts, the kid gets up and moves around. They're fine. That's physical resiliency. That same kid could fall and he's like, oh, are you okay? And the kid starts crying. That's emotional resiliency. The kid's like, I'm supposed to be sad right now. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. I'm in trouble now, right? So there obviously is a bleed between them, but there we could debate all day or talk about all day. When I get punched in the stomach, is it that I physically can't go forward or is it because my brain's like, ooh, I'm not mentally prepared for this? Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Um, you know, as, and as you're talking and I'm thinking this through, I want to step outside for, uh, you know, for our listeners and viewers. I want to step outside the, you know, the personal protection or like the self-defense yeah. model and maybe offer an example, uh, Randy, and hear what your thoughts are in using your model for uh, safety in another way. Let's talk about fire safety. My child lives on the third sure. floor and I have a collapsible ladder that it's on a chain and it goes out the window and it leads down to a, a roof over the first floor and she'd be able, and there's a whole escape route. So if any of the listeners or viewers, they have, the, you know, I hope, to, I hope you have uh, a fire safety protocol for your family in your house. If you don't get on it now, we can talk about that in another discussion. But um, in this example for just, let's say fire safety and how we can use um, you know, the, you know, this model here is first of all, make sure the moment that you detect this or you hear your smoke detectors, you say, I have to get out of here. This is the permission layer. This is mm -hmm. huge because of the value you have for yourself. Don't freeze. Don't lock up. Don't start screaming. You have permission to get out of here. Mom and dad want you to do the same thing with like abduction awareness too. It's like mom and dad right. want you to do this. You need to do this. Second strategy it's this is and we teach the child this is where it is this is how you unroll it this is how you hook it to the window frame and you have them do it a couple times so this is and then you're going to go and you map it out for them the route and then you get a certain distance away from the house and stay at a anchor point and then so now we've covered the strategy now that resilience is 
the um, ability in, in, you know, you're going to develop the skill over time, I guess, but the resilience is stepping into this discussion, maybe, you know, once a month or maybe, you know, but, but just having that repetition, like you said, and having them roll it out. But the skill is actually going through the complete scenario. Alarm, fire alarm goes off. So they go through that shock. They, yeah. they, they're able to go through that freeze and that discomfort of, you know, oh, shit. But then it's now, okay, well, your next step is you take a moment, you observe. Then your next step is you take go to strategy. You roll out the ladder. You go through. Then you go to your resilience. You've done this over and over again. And then, boom, you fall, you fall back on your skill and you're able to actually descend. You're able to do all the things and get to the place that you need. So now I just want to see here if I'm understanding your model, Randy, and I'm trying to use this and, and, and expand on it and put it into a space that is in, in child safety, but outside of sure. self-defense. How do you feel right. about that? Is that accurate? Yeah, I think this is a great example. We actually had a house fire in 2019 right before the pandemic. So this hits close to home. Uh, so the way it would be is obviously permission. Is Permission is you are in charge of getting yourself to safety, right? Don't yeah. wait for mom. Don't wait for dad, right? Yep. Get your mask on first before the other person. Strategy would then be get out of the building, not necessarily that way because maybe the fire's on the balcony. So yep. then the strategy would be your goal is to get out of the building. What are the ways we can get out? We get out the main door. There's a window. We have this ladder, right? So those that's going to be where your strategy kicks in. Not, uh, not the skill of going down, but of the, okay, our goal is there's a fire, get out of the building. Because if you only have one plan and that plan is interrupted by, for example, our fire's on the balcony. Right? Yeah. So we had the rope ladder, assuming we'd be in the hallway. Nope, it was in the balcony. You had to go at the main door. That's right. So that's your strategy. So you got to get out, make sure you're safe. Give yourself permission to be there. Give yourself permission to leave your stuff. Right? Because uh, I've been in two fires once when I was five. And the hardest thing for me to do at five years old was to not take my toys with me. Yeah. So that strategy right? is really to so consider the different variables. Exactly. That's yeah. just, your strategy is your overarching goal. Yeah. That's how I look at it, right? So if my goal is don't get burned, how do I get out of here? There's going to be multiple options. That keeps the brain more plastic or more uh, adaptable. Then resiliency would be like, okay, I'm going to go for plan A. Oh, plan A didn't work. Now I can go to plan B. I'm not going to get upset or shut down because my first option didn't work. I'm going to figure out a different way. And then the skill would be, climbing down the ladder and hooking it up. It would be the pulling the alarm, those little things that make the strategy work. Does yeah. that make sense? Totally, man. Totally. I love this. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> um, you know, I want to be sensitive of your time, Randy. I really appreciate this. And I, you know, I appreciate sharing this, uh, the, this model with us. It's going to bring a lot of value and I know it's going to help Good. men who are working with their kids to actually, you know, even though they may have their own skill template, they can apply now something more holistic to their training. Uh, and I think that this is, uh, this is wonderful. I really appreciate it. I have two more questions. Uh, okay. The, and, and these will be short questions. I, That's fine. Stepping away from the training, stepping away from all this, I'm really curious to hear, Randy, um, with all of your experience, whether it be in you know, all your travel, all the teaching, all the personalities that you've worked with, all the different... Uh, encounters that you've had, um, what obstacle do you fear the most and keeps you up at night? What do you know that it's like, man, we're not going to get through this or like, well, I just don't know how that 
this is going to be overcome. What is it that keeps Randy awake at night? So do you mean in the world or in my business? I mean, in general, I mean, in general, what is it that, you know, someone in, in your lane who works with people as a career on how to overcome life's hardest challenges, what do they face? I think the thing that keeps me up at night is that I, unfortunately, I think this is about as good as we're going to get as people. So while we can drop percentages on uh, attacks and we can make people harder targets so we can do this stuff, it's still going to happen, right? And it's, it, it throws me back and forth too, because like bullying is, is bad, but also if I didn't get bullied, I wouldn't be who I am today. So like, it's, it's a very hard, I have this, I I live in this like uh, fight for the world you want, live in the world you have kind of mentality, right? Like I want to, I want the world to be the safe place where, you know, you can walk and you can not pay attention to your drink and you can run into the woods as a kid and there's not going to be a witch in a gingerbread house. That's why fairy tales exist, right? But I just, I don't, I don't see it happening. I just don't think it will. So what keeps me up at night is that Am I even making a difference? Like I am on a micro level, but at a macro level, which I would like to do, I don't think it's possible. I think this is, unless there's like a evolution or a shift or I don't know, something that unites the planet, but I don't see anything doing that anytime soon. Uh, that's what keeps me up is that like it, every time I give a solution, every time I'm teaching a class, every time I, I tell people and try to help them, I'm like, I know this is such a macro or such a micro solution, such a macro problem is, you know, the predator doesn't pick you. I'm not saying they don't pick anybody. I'm just saying they don't pick you because of the training, right? And that's, that's what sucks. Brother, let me explain something to you as a, <laughs> you are making a big difference in this world, man. I'm, I've sat here now for almost an hour hearing your stories, working with people on reservations, working with uh, women who have been victimized. And, uh, you know, I just want to, I can very clearly see that, that you are making a impact on your world, on the lives of people. And, you know, I've had the privilege of spending some time studying Zen. And I know I just, you know, you know, probably have heard that saying of when you drop a pebble in one side of the ocean, on the other side, it can become a wave, a massive wave or a tsunami and the ripple, the concentric effects of the work that you have done, you'll never know about and you'll never see, uh, but they can be so powerful and so broad. Uh, I just want to, you know, recognize you for that. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. So Randy, tell us a little bit as we wrap this up, tell us a little bit about uh, um, where, people can contact you where they can learn about your upcoming work. Uh, and if there's anything specific, like you mentioned, you're working on a book, uh, share with us anything mm-hmm. that you're working on right now that we, uh, we maybe want, we may want to focus on. Sure. I'm always, I'm always working and creating. Um, I'm doing stuff all the time. There's a lot in here that I want to get out. Uh, so book is coming ideally September. Don't have a working title for it yet. So we'll put that on the back burner. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, it's really easy. Like honestly, uh, 
for a while, my brand was Randy King Live. So you just type in Randy King Live and you'll find me. That's my website. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, follow me there. On TikTok, we're at Defense Talks with Dad. Defense in the Canadian spelling. So D-E-F-E-N-C-E, not S-E. And people yell at me because they say, this guy can't even spell self-defense. I'm like, well, okay. Uh, and then... Yeah, you can get pretty much. I'm very accessible right now. You can message me, ask me questions. If you like this material, uh, I have two online courses that I highly recommend, obviously. Uh, one is Realities of Violence. It has this model that we talked about, not as refined, but we are working on a new version. And if you buy the old version, we're just going to be putting a new version on that. So if you buy this one, you'll get the new one automatically. That's the cool part about online courses as opposed to books yep. is we can update them. Um, I also have a course called Realities of Boundary Setting, which has been super helpful. And if you guys want to take that, anybody here wants to take that, I will shoot discount codes to Adam and awesome. you can take it there. We'll do 40% off or whatever. Yeah, and then I give away a ton of free material. So blogs and Instagram posts and TikToks and whatever. I'm always talking about this. So you can get a lot of information from me without giving me one penny. You don't have to give me anything because I hate the gatekeeping in this industry. If I can say something that will make you safer, I don't want to hide that behind a paywall. But if you want longer form or deeper thoughts on that, we have Patreon. We have a bunch of other ways you can get a hold of us. Absolutely. Just get a hold of me. We'll put you somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Randy King, first of all, once again, thank you so much for uh, the work that you do, for helping to keep our world safe, for helping to keep families and children safe, helping the dads who are joining us here in this conversation, all the work that you do. Uh, and I look forward to continuing this conversation and uh, having you among my friends, sir. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Adam. It was a great time. I want to thank you for spending time with us on this episode today. It's truly appreciated. I hope you got some value from it. If you want to go ahead and leave any comments or questions, reach out to me directly. I personally answer all of the questions that you have. If you know someone like yourself who may find value in this episode, then please go ahead and share it. We'd also like to ask you to subscribe to Close Quarter Dad. This way you get updated every time a new episode comes out wherever you're listening to this episode. Thank you so much once again, and we'll see you on the next episode of Close Quarter Dad.